0: Welcome to the Pro-Politics Podcast. I'm Zach McCrary. I've been working in politics for the better part of two decades, but at heart, I'm a political junkie who wants to talk to interesting people involved in politics. Today, I'm joined by Mark Putnam, a Democratic media consultant and strategist for three decades. Mark and his firm have blazed the trail of some of the most creative and memorable ads of the recent past, including many of the ads that went viral for candidates like Amy McGrath, MJ Higar, among others. Mark's worked on nine presidential campaigns, including both Obama campaigns, and most recently was part of the Unite the Country Super PAC, backing Joe Biden in 2020. Not only has Mark helped elect dozens of candidates up and down the ballot, but also his approach and creativity have had a great deal of influence on the political advertising industry as a whole on both sides of the aisle. I really enjoyed this discussion with Mark. Mark Putnam, tell me a bit how you grew up.
1: Well, I was born and raised in Anchorage, Alaska. I was actually born one week before the Great Alaska Earthquake of 1964, actually the second strongest earthquake measured in world history of 9.2 on the Richter scale. And the story I know about that is my father leaped into the bedroom where I was and rode on top of the crib for five minutes from one end of the room to the other, so nothing would fall on me. Crazy welcoming into the world. My dad was a school principal. My mom was a school librarian. One of them voted for Gerald Ford in in 1976. I don't remember which one. You can't grow up in Alaska without being really exposed to a conservative way of thinking. So all throughout my childhood, Republican governors, and Republican senators, we had some Democratic senators too along the way. But my first real memory of something in politics or a political figure was actually a congressman from Alaska, Nick Begich, who ended up disappearing in in a plane crash. Uh, they never found found the records, but I was eight years old at the time. For 39 days, I would ask my mom every morning, "Did they find the plane?" And every morning, she'd say, "No, they haven't yet." And and the 40th day, she she told me, "No, no, sorry, honey, they they've stopped looking." I mean, that was really the first political figure that I knew of and felt real loss over being fulfilling later in my career to be able to help his son Mark Begich in his one of his mayoral campaigns and then in his Senate races, but. That was a formative experience for me. The very first political ad that I remember seeing was, I was probably about 10 or 11 years old, and it was a candidate handing out balloons to little kids for the entire 30 seconds of the ad. And I remember thinking as a kid, well, that's the silliest thing I've ever seen. Um,
0: Do you remember who that might have been?
1: No, I just remember thinking it was ridiculous and started watching political ads with a little bit more of a critical eye at that point.
0: Now that you've been all over the country, you, you you live in the D.C. area now, just how different do you think growing up in, in Anchorage, in Alaska, is to
1: what maybe most of the rest of us are used to? For a lot of people, you don't really appreciate a place until you've left. would complain about things like there are no major league sports here. There's no no concerts, no room big enough to hold a concert in. Ozzy Osbourne came and played at West Anchorage High School in the 70s, but that was about the biggest concert you could get in a place like Anchorage, Alaska. But what I didn't appreciate until I went to college and went to the lower 48 was that, first off, we had mountains 10 minutes out of town, and you could go hike up to the top of a mountain and, and be completely away from everything. Wide open spaces and nature It was something that I really realized later was actually quite influential on me. You know, everybody knows each other in community where you would all go to the Nordstrom, and that's the one place everybody would go at, at winter break and, and see their friends. Or, and uh, it's a strange place to meet up with people, but that's, that was like a gathering spot for some reason in Anchorage, Alaska. It was just, it was a great place to grow up, and I, and I, and I miss it. What is your uh, the Mark Putnam
0: Politics 101 of Alaska? What are the strands that run through Alaska politics that you think are
1: important? It's not a hardcore Republican state. It's much more of an independent state, almost a libertarian state in a lot of ways. So people are distrustful of government, but they're really not on the right wing bandwagon, which is how I think a lot of Democrats have occasionally gotten elected there. Tony Knowles was a two-term governor, Mark Begich in the 2008 election. But before that, we had Mike Gravel and other Democrats along the way. But it really is a place of fierce independence it's, there's a lot of oil money up there, so there's a lot of understanding and acceptance of the energy industry. It is sometimes difficult for people outside of Alaska to really understand. For me, the dominant political figures growing up were Ted Stevens, who was multi-multi-term senator, ultimately 40 years in the Senate. To who you helped ultimately oust from the Senate. Right. Well, there's actually a story about that. Uh, I'll to get to that in a second. Jay Hammond was a Republican governor who set up the permanent fund, which really was a source of income extra income for a lot of people for many many years and but the funny thing about ted stevens was in 1980 i was gonna i was on an airplane flight to go look at colleges and uh, we were stuck on the tarmac for trying to get a flight to to minneapolis and on that flight up in first class was ted stevens and then the junior senator frank murkowski and uh, i had applied for an internship in steven's office a summer internship for high school kids and I, I screwed up my courage and I went up to the first class and I, I Senator Stevens was sitting there reading his newspaper and I went up to him and I said, you know, Senator, I just want to let you know I, uh, my name's Mark Putnam. I applied for an internship in your office and I just hope I get the chance to help you out. He kind of looked up at me. And he just grunted. It wasn't even a word. And he went right back to reading his newspaper. <laughs> I was pretty crushed as a, you know, then. 16, 17-year-old kid went back to my part of the airplane and many years later got to help push him out of office.
0: Yeah, and a good example of just how young Alaska is as a state is, I believe Stevens might have even been in some sort of elective office before Alaska was even a state. I know that you, as a younger person, probably still today, were passionate, had an interest in uh, science, not political science, but the actual hard sciences. How, how did that interest and passion develop? And can you talk about how you were your interest in your career trajectory as you were pursuing some of those more science-based studies?
1: My interest in science and my interest in politics were pretty much in parallel. I remember in high school having watched all those political ads all those years thinking, Boy, I wonder how a person would get into that business, but it didn't really seem real to me at the time. I was also just very, very interested in biology, molecular biology in particular. So that's actually what I ended up studying in college. I thought I was on a track to eventually get an MBA. So I'd have an understanding of the science, but also a a master's of business and then go work in biotech. That was my career plan early in college. That interest in science has helped me along the way with a real appreciation for what you do uh, in polling, that there is data behind everything that we do in politics, at least ideally. And ultimately, for me, it was walking that line of creativity and data to help create the best messaging. I think I also learned from that, though, ultimately, that you don't really have to be pre-professional with a degree, especially if you want to work in politics. I think that it's, it's nice if you get a political science degree, and I took classes in that. With that science background something completely divorced from politics just gave me a little bit more of an outside perspective on things. How did you make the leap to
0: working in politics?
1: I I really got into this in sort of in an unusual way, but then in a very old-fashioned way, ultimately. When I was a freshman in college, I would do my math and science homework in the liberal arts library. It just happened to be where I like to go. And, and there were a bunch of books up on the bookshelf about politics. Ironically, one of them was about political advertising. And so I used to, instead of doing my homework, I would pull those books down and, and read them all the time. And I took a persuasive writing class, and I had to come up with a paper idea. And, and actually, freshman year of college, the paper I wrote for that class was The Political Commercial, Effective, Efficient, and Necessary. And it's kind of funny to go back and read that paper now, which I dug it out a few years ago. And um, actually, I still agree with a lot of what I wrote. So I had this hobby interest, senior year when you're supposed to start figuring out what you want to do with the rest of your life. I knew that I didn't want to spend the rest of my life in a lab. Even the biotech business thing wasn't as appealing to me. So I was trying to figure out how a person might get into political advertising. And so it suddenly occurred to me that maybe I should follow a passion I had instead of just a plan that seemed to make sense earlier. I was a head advisor in the freshman dorm, and one of my, we call them counselees, one of my counselees was a woman named Laura Zaccaro. Her father was John Zaccaro, who was the husband of Geraldine Ferraro. This was shortly after the 84 presidential campaign. Laura's mom had just run for vice president. I uh, asked Laura, I said, Laura, who's a good friend of mine at the time? I said, Laura, can you explain to me how a person might get into this line of work? She goes, well, I have no idea. I worked with the speechwriters on the campaign, but that was about it. She goes, you should talk to my mom. And so Easter weekend was my first informational interview ever. It was with Geraldine Ferraro, and it could not have been more amazing. I mean, she was the same way in person that, that I'd seen on television. She was personable, funny, kind, generous with her time. And, uh, I said, should I go work for a regular advertising agency? Should I go work on a campaign? Should I go work on Capitol Hill? What, what should I do? And she's like, no, you shouldn't do any of those. If You really want to do this. You should go work for a political media firm. And uh, she referred me to a few folks, and uh, one of them was Bob Squire's firm. I applied for an internship there and and was fortunate to get it.
0: Well, Bob Squire, a giant of the political consulting industry, really one of the father's godfathers of political advertising. Tell me a little bit about the Bob Squire you knew and you learned from.
1: He was really an incredible person. I mean, first, he came into political media as a documentary filmmaker. I really appreciated that viewpoint that he had, that he was trying to tell authentic stories. And it's interesting, in some ways, the art of political media started there with with authentic storytelling in the documentary style and has come back to that over the last... 15 years or so, he would fill a room. He'd come into the room and he was as magnetic a personality as any can coming in. And I think a lot of candidates were drawn to that. He had this same sort of force field of, of appeal that they experienced in, in their line of work. He had everybody's attention, a lot of experience. I remember I would drive him around. One time we were talking about the 1988 presidential campaign, which was coming up. And I was just curious if he thought he was going to end up helping anybody. He talked to me. He told me about how, you know, there were already a lot of candidates in that race who, who were clients of, of his, you know, from Joe Biden to Michael Dukakis, to Paul Simon to Gore. So he thought he would probably end up staying on the sidelines. I also would drive the film out to his editing facility at his farm in Virginia. I love those trips. You know, it would it'd take me an hour and a half to get out there, but then I could sit around and watch he and his editor, Joe Gavet just cut commercials together. To me, it was like I'd died and gone to heaven. I mean, I couldn't imagine a, a more interesting thing to be able to watch this master of the art and his editor collaborate on, on making commercials. Carter rescue. at that time was, was a very senior person in the firm. Bill Knapp, Tom Oaks. Mark Squire, uh, Bob's son, the whole group of people. It was just a fun place to be with a lot of really smart people uh, at the top of their craft and their game. And that year we had 1986, uh, the Senate flipped from Republican back to Democrat and a lot of the races that we were working on, like Bob Graham in Florida was one of them, Terry Sanford in North Carolina, Richard Shelby, who was a Democrat then in Alabama, which is a race that I got to work on pretty closely at one point. You are doing the biggest races in the country with some of the smartest people you could hope to be around.
0: What connective tissue do you see now with you and Putnam Partners? Are there fingerprints that you can see of Bob
1: Squire? The Carter SQ piece of it is being able to have a long view of a campaign and seeing the terrain and where the pitfalls might be and, and what the attack, counterattack might be. And, and that was a really helpful thing for me to learn about it at an early age. I mean, Carter would sit down and just map out how he thought the whole campaign was going to unfold. And strategically, that was very formative for me. Cliché that everybody says you have to tell a story in an ad, but I really learned from Bob Squire the importance of telling that authentic, believable story with the beginning, a middle, and an end within 30 seconds, That pull people in at the very beginning. You have to create an interesting dynamic with some tension, and then you have to resolve the argument. The best campaigns tell a story over the course of the whole campaign. So all the ads eventually tie together with a common theme. That authenticity that came from his background in in documentary filmmaking has really influenced me because I'm always trying to figure out what is the natural way of telling the story in the candidate's voice. Now, one of the most difficult things is actually fitting a story into 30 seconds, and so just interviewing a candidate usually isn't enough because they'll often tell things in a way that take much longer than 30 seconds. I adapted from what I learned from Bob Squire was the idea that I'm going to interview the candidate. I want to get to know them as well as I can, spend real time with them learning their story, and then translate it into a script that will work in 30 seconds in their voice. While it might be scripted, it has all of its roots in DNA and what I learned about them from the very beginning, and I think that that really comes from Bob's approach.
0: Is there a race or two in those early that early first cycle
1: or two that you feel like you really learned a lot that sticks with you? Actually, from that very first cycle in 1986, I, I would go, first off, in the evenings, and because I was getting paid literally $100 a week. I had no money to spend, so my entertainment was hanging around the firm at night and looking at all the ads they'd ever made. And so I would go down to the basement, pull out these boxes, and watch every commercial I could find. From Chancy Croft running for governor of my home state of Alaska, to Paul Simon's race, to all sorts of races. And then I started moving to reading the research books on each of the campaigns. And I remember reading the research book on Jeremiah Denton, who was Richard Shelby's opponent in Alabama. And buried in this book was this story about how it was a hearing on spousal abuse. At some point, he got angry. Uh, he was a prisoner of war, by the way, so I five or six years in a prisoner of war camp. And I definitely think it affected him. But he slammed his fist on the table and said, God damn it, when you get married, you kind of expect you're going to get a little sex. I remember reading this and I was just amazed that I hadn't heard that we were going to do anything with this. So I remember reaching out to Carter and saying, I think you can make a hell of an ad out of this. And he's like, well, write a script, worked up a draft of a script, sent it to Carter. We went back and forth on it. And the very first ad I got to make was this ad targeted at women voters, bought a lot of daytime TV with it, telling this story about his view on spousal abuse and ended up being written up as one of two uh, two ads that probably had a real pivotal difference in that race because he barely won. So that early formative experience of reading a re- research book um, seeing the process of developing a script, going into the edit suite with Carter and another producer and seeing how you put it all together, for me, was fascinating. And the, the last thing about editing was what I learned from that experience was I love being in the edit suite. Some people, you sit in there for 10, 12 hours, and you're looking at the back of an editor's head because they're hunched over their keyboard, and it, and it can be like watching paint dry. What I loved about it was I realized a decision was being made every second of the way. Every keystroke the editor made was a decision being made on how to present the argument.
0: Is there a race or two that you felt like were some of the early signature races of your own coming out of the shadows and, and really putting your stamp on things for the entirety of a race?
1: Well, first off, I was really fortunate uh, along the way to work with great mentors and eventual partners. Um, got to work with Peter Fenn and Tom King, which was Fenn and King Communications at the time. And then Steve Murphy joined that firm and, and really the four of us eventually became Fan King Murphy Putnam. So the early races, I don't really feel like were all me because I was doing it in collaboration with people like Greatly Respected, who were placing a lot of trust in me to come up with creative concepts and eventually to direct the spots. But it's hard for me to say, you know, well, that was mine because it really wasn't. It was, it was a collaborative effort. And it's funny, sometimes for some reason, you, you remember sometimes your defeats more than your victories. But I feel like the first series of ads that I really conceived of and drove the train on completely was in 1994 it was a governor race against Tommy Thompson who was running for his third or fourth term and it was 1994 which was a terrible year for Democrats and there was no way we were going to win the campaign but a guy named state senator named Chuck Qualla. it was all an ad about his cronies and you see a lot of crony ads in politics and, and frankly I can't stand most of them it's usually cigar smoke exactly cigar smoke and clinking champagne glasses and to me that I just Voters have seen those a 1,000 times and they dismiss them. What we did instead, the idea I came up with was four of his golfing buddies all wanting to go out and play golf with him. And they're driving all over town trying to find Tommy Thompson to go play golf. And so we're driving these golf courses, first on the golf course, going as fast as a golf cart could go on a golf course, swerving around. I'd hate to know what we did to the greens of that course. but um, And then eventually we're down to driving the golf carts downtown. And they are st- they pull up outside of the office of a crony of his who got some special deal. And they're out there with their beer cans. And they're just yelling towards the building. Come on out, Dickie. Let's go. Let's go. And we did a whole series of these ads. And, you know, we didn't win the campaign. But it was the first time when I saw that you could do something funny outside of the usual cliche of cronies and just get people's attention. And and they got a lot of attention. This is pre-YouTube, you know, pre-internet, but there was a lot of buzz about it. Probably the first time I actually felt like I put my stamp on something and it wasn't a campaign we were going to win. For me, validated that you could do humor and political advertising, make people smile and still make a point that would stick. And your fingerprints are now on some of the
0: iconic ads of the last uh, decade, the last 10, 20 years, John Hickenlooper in the shower and Jason Kander putting the rifle together with a blindfold on, Amy McGrath landing on an aircraft carrier uh, just scratches the surface. But what is something you know in the Mark Putnam catalog, something you're especially proud of uh, that you think maybe is a little less celebrated, uh, but something that because of that approach actually made a, a big difference in a race?
1: It's a great question. The first one that pops to mind is is one I'm personally really proud to have been a part of. Back in 1987, when I I was working for Joe Biden, and you'll know a true alum of that campaign, because we always refer to it as 1987 and not 1988. (laughs) He dropped out before the election year came along. But of I was this deputy Southern coordinator or the Southern desk, which was sort of funny, me from Alaska being you know, put in the South. In some ways, culturally, it made sense. But the only time I'd ever been in the South was flying through Atlanta. We had an intern on that campaign, a guy named Phil Weiser. He had just finished his freshman year of college. Here I was barely out of college myself. And he and I struck up a real friendship. Then in 2018, he reached out to me and said, hey, Mark, you know, I'm thinking about running for attorney general in Colorado. And any t- time you get a chance to, to help a friend is just great. He started out in that race at 3% in the polls. Uh, at 36% was a guy named Joe Salazar. And Coloradans just assumed that he was related to John Salazar, the former congressman, and Ken Salazar, the former senator. So if you have the last name Salazar, it's gold in Colorado politics. And so we were way behind and we could raise enough money for one TV ad. We we went back and forth on different ideas. And, and I came up with this idea that he was running. He was motivated by Donald Trump to run like so many other people were that cycle. Uh, but that the moment that Trump won on election night, that Phil had started writing down every idea he had for the ways he was going to try and stop Donald Trump. So the whole ad is him writing up post-it notes and, and a little log in his in his car and a, and a restaurant. He's with eating with Ken Salazar and he's writing down ideas for how he's gonna take on Donald Trump. And we, we went and ended up winning that campaign by less than a point. That one was especially rewarding some of the races that I'm most proud of are on a part of what we used to call our valiant efforts reel. We used to have it in the days of DVD, we could you could create chapters on the DVD and we had valiant efforts. And, and a campaign that I was really proud of that we came really close on was in 2012 for John Gregg. And he was running against Mike Pence for governor and we started off 20 points back and we did a whole series of ads focused on his small town that he grew up in and still lived in where we would celebrate somebody in the town to make a different point about Mike Pence and all the ads were very lighthearted very country but there some were touching i mean one was about a this buddy of his named hobo that that had cancer, and what the whole town did to come together to help them out, and we ended up um, losing that race by less than three points. I mean, we really scared Mike Pence because he was thought he was on the coast to victory, and so sometimes you know you take some solace in in coming really close, and, uh, and that was that was one of them. But it, it is a, it is a race that I'm also proud of.
0: Really, have been influential really at the advent of these candidate intro videos the the Amy McGrath candidate intro video probably wasn't literally the first of its type but you know in my mind sort of kicked off this phenomenon of very few go viral but but some of them go viral and many candidates feel obligated I worked with one of your colleagues Casey McCabe on the MJ Higar race and another on that short list of those viral videos what are your rules of thumb for how you would advise a candidate to be thinking about those types of early announcement intro
1: videos what you just said is that it's a long shot to go viral. Make sure the candidate and the campaign know that going into the process. And we actually end up talking more people out of doing them. They can be expensive. I mean, I think people have this idea that you can shoot a video like that for $10,000 and it's going to go viral. And the reality is, oftentimes they're two to three minutes long. Well, that's like making four to six 30 second ads. And if you go do a real good job on producing four to six political ads, it costs real money, I mean, tens of thousands of dollars, not just 10. We have to really do a cost-benefit analysis. Is this going to at least raise what we paid to make it? And is it going to go beyond that? Is it going to you know, raise the profile of the candidate? Benchmarks that we like to see hit are, A, first off, is it a federal race? Because those are the races where you can get somebody in another state to invest in your campaign. If you're running for governor, it's really hard. Let's say you're running for governor in Colorado. It's hard to get somebody in Nebraska to care about your race and invest in it. Federal races usually have the most success with viral videos. You have to have a great antagonist. For Amy McGrath, it was a mention of Mitch McConnell and how when she was 12 years old and she wrote him a letter and he didn't respond because she wanted to know why women couldn't be fighter pilots. The third thing we've noticed is that it's best if it's an August release because DC is on on recess and it's a little slower time in political news. And so it's nice if it has a chance to poke its head up and be seen. And also you have to have a really good story. Uh, and I always believe that every candidate has a story worth telling. Some are better for that virality than others. Just looking at it, everybody does them now and it's become such a standard thing that it, it's harder and harder for them to poke their head up and get noticed. But when they do, it's, it's like a riding an adrenaline wave. Money starts coming in. It's a ride unlike any other. My last thing I'd say is it seems like a lot of the best known viral videos are usually in places that are nearly impossible to win. Randy Bryce going up, you know, against uh, the Speaker of the House or or Amy going up, you know, in an 13 district or same thing with MJ. Most of the ones, you know, are in deeply red states with really interesting stories. And I think a lot of Democrats out there are a bit like wow, I like this person. I want to invest in their campaigns. I think maybe they can actually pull it off. And so a lot of times these candidates don't end up winning, but we're able to help them build their profile, position them hopefully for something else if they don't succeed in that campaign.
0: Yeah, and I'm not sure I can put my finger on it, but I feel like I can distinguish a Mark Putnam ad, a Putnam Partners ad. Your, your, again, your colleagues, Kevin McKeon and Casey McCabe and Frank Eaton, I can distinguish a Mark Putnam Putnam Partners ad from a lot of other firms creative, but I'm not really quite sure why. What do you think I'm noticing that is different, even if
1: I'm clearly not able to articulate it? First off, it's really flattering to hear that. What we try to do with every ad we make is find the emotional story to be told and then tell it as authentically as we we possibly can, or find a metaphor fits a situation that is easy for people to understand and then do the best job you can shooting it you know, not trying to say too many things and then they have a nice clean point produced as well as it can possibly be produced. We really take a lot of time to get the cinematography right and the, and the audio right and the music. I have a musical background. I used to play cello um, all the way through college. And so for me, I love the process of working with the composer and sometimes a really good musical score can be the thing that draws people in on an emotional level the writing is really important. And maybe that's a signature of ours that, that, that we try to stay away from a lot of the usual political cliches and the, and the language you hear in so many political ads. And a person who had an enormous influence on me was a guy named Hal Riney, who's known in the political world for having created the Morning in America ads for Ronald Reagan. I really got to know about him before that because I loved his work in the commercial. He worked for Gallo Wines and Saturn Cars and airline ads. And and his writing was always very, very spare and simple, very American. I mean, his phrases were American. I think that that's something that we as a firm take pride in: getting out of the cliché. Like for instance, you see a lot of ads these days with a candidate running, like literally running, and and the metaphor is, oh, look, you know, he's running for office. Well, I think that's kind of tired, frankly. And I would, I've done running ads before too, but I, I did one for a guy named Mike Ross running for mayor in Boston, and he's running because he's trying to. So he's trying to hand out his plan to as many people as he can get to. So the point of the running wasn't, oh, look, it's a metaphor for running for office. It's more like this is the fastest way that I can get my plan out to as many people as possible. And it was fun. It was a fun ad to watch. And so breaking out of the cliches and and doing things that are just a little bit different.
0: One race that you were involved in that I wanted to to ask about, and I think is one of the upsets of the past decade, is, is Heidi Heitkamp winning an open Senate race in North Dakota in 2012. In 2010, there had been an open seat in North Dakota The Republican won. It was 70 percent. Two years later in 2012, there's another open seat, the Republican candidate. Rick Berg is the at-large congressman, meaning, of course, he already represents the entire state in the House. The Democratic candidate, your candidate, Heidi Heitkamp. Can you walk me through your take on how the media strategy helped pull off that upset Uh, at the same time Barack Obama was losing the state by 20 points? And and certainly the story ends in 2018 with Heitkamp getting uh, pulled under by the partisan tide here. But can you talk through the media strategy of that 2012 Heidi Heitkamp race in North Dakota?
1: Well, it started with really her campaign for governor in 2000, when I was fortunate to get to work with Heidi. And in August of that year, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. I went out to help her shoot a couple of ads where she explained to the state why she was still uh, staying in the race for governor and why it was so important to her and her family. When you go through an experience like like that with, with someone like Heidi, who's just such a generous person, I, I would walk over you know glass for her. Fast forward to 2012, a lot of other North Dakotans just had fond memories of her. And 12 years, which is an eternity in politics, just three eternities in politics, and her favorables were still high. You know, she wasn't ahead in the in the horse race, but but her favorables were were good, and she had something to build on. Early on, the ads were just reminding people about her humble beginnings, her large family. We did an ad with all of her siblings talking about laundry, and I loved it. It wasn't scripted. We just interviewed each each sibling in a chair. They all were just, we intercut them telling the same story about how Heidi was the one who would sit in the laundry room and do her homework while they're all out playing outside and she was in there supposedly doing the laundry, but really just like doing, doing her homework. Early on that campaign, we just reminded people what, what they really liked about Heidi. But then, you know, then you start getting into the the war phase of the campaign. And we were under assault from a lot of different directions. It was, again, helpful for me to really know Heidi well, because I remembered somewhere in the back of my mind that not only did she play softball a lot as a kid, but her dad even built a softball field in the little town that they lived in. I kind of had stored that away in my head, took my kid to, to a batting cage and was watching him hit balls. And it was just this onslaught of balls. And at the time he he would have been six years old, no, eight years old. The two ideas kind of came together in my head. And I realized, you know, we're under assault from all these outside interests. Let's make an ad where we just show Heidi just like hitting all those balls back. And it was the one ad in the campaign where We had worked ourselves into a tie, 46-45, 45-46. And finally, when that ad went on the air, jumped into a lead, first time in the campaign, 49-42, late September. By the time we'd pulled it off, it was mid-October and it just went right back to a tie again. It was the power of that ad of her not letting their attacks bother her. Like at the end of the ad, she just kind of winks at the camera, communicate, this is politics, right? Like, I'm not letting this bother me. You know, I'm hitting back all these attacks. We ended up putting on the air at the end uh, for the last week and a half. And, you know, we eked out a win. What was important in that campaign was Heidi's character all along running against national Democrats. She was running a very North Dakota-centric campaign campaign. We would constantly feature real people in the ads. We'd feature stories from her childhood, stories of her family, and it it, it worked.
0: A lot of your ads are more ambitious in production uh, than a standard political ad shoot. I I remember uh, we worked together on a race in Southwest Virginia where I believe you filmed the candidate deep inside a coal mine or going down into a coal mine, something pretty complicated. What have you learned over the years about selling those kind of ideas to candidates, especially if it seems ambitious at first, especially to some candidates who maybe are used to just sitting down in the studio and talking for 30 seconds, and that's the end of it.
1: I feel fortunate that nowadays when folks hire me or hire our firm, that they want the out-of-the-box idea. But in the earlier going, it wasn't always so easy to convince people to do it. And a, a great example of that would be Bill Richardson uh, running for re-election as governor in 2006. And he had his eye on a presidential run in 2007 and 2008. One of the factoids that tested really well in the poll was that they'd gotten, New Mexico had gotten hundreds of millions of dollars worth of Hollywood production business. So how do you tell that story? Well, I came up with the idea of having the governor be like the sheriff in an old Western, spitting out Western cliches. One of those cliches was, you know, in every Hollywood movie, Western, you see them ride up and they say, well, head him off at the pass. Well, I wanted him to ride up on this horse and yell out, we'll head him off at the pass, and then gallop off. And he goes, first off, he, he didn't understand the thing to begin with. Like, he could not understand what any of these lines really meant. Uh, he just didn't get the joke because he hadn't seen it uh, as a finished avenue." I said, I need you to yell out this line. We'll head him off at the pass. He goes, Mark, this isn't my horse. I said, okay, but I still need you to ride up and gallop up on the horse. He goes, Mark, I can't gallop up on a horse that's not my horse. So the very first take, he literally is clip, clop, clip, clop. We'll head him off at the pass. Clip, clop, clip, clop. Like, oh, my God. We're never going to make this scene work if he can't gallop up. Finally, over the course of the ad, we, we got him to trot up and, and yell the line. And another line in the ad bursts into a bar. And everybody dives under the tables and he, and he yells out from the entry to the bar, give me a milk. And it was when he was on parades after the ad had run and little kids would hold up milk cartons and say, give me a milk to him when he would go by in the parade. That was when he finally got it. They've seen the ad. Oh, they get the joke. And and it all clicked for him. Then when he ran for president and he was in sixth or seventh place and wasn't really going anywhere in the polls and we'd run serious ads about all of his accomplishments. I finally succeeded in convincing others in the campaign to let me shoot a series of ads called the job interview ads, where he's being interviewed for the job of president by a very disinterested job interviewer. Those ads helped us jump from 2% in the polls to 14 or 15% and into fourth place, which put us into what my old partner, Steve Murphy, and I used to call the consideration set. They were now willing to consider him and they would show up at his town hall meetings. He didn't really get the, the, the Western ad in 2006, but he, he, he kind of went along with it. And then he completely trusted me on the, on the job interview ads. And in fact, when I said that you know, there are a few people in the campaign that think it isn't presidential... And his response was, you know, screw them. A little more colorful word than that, even. We're, we're going to do it. And he kind of said, "I remember that. I remember the same thing about the Western ad." So it's just if you can convince them that it'll work, if you either show it through past ads or or just bring them along in a process, and if they'll just give you a chance to shoot it, I feel like if I can get it, they'll let, if they'll let me make the ad, then they'll hopefully see what we had intended all along.
0: You talk about the Richardson 2008 presidential and you end up after the primaries part of the media team of the Obama campaign that puts together of multiple media teams bringing together in the general elections. What memories stand out most to you from that 2008 Obama effort?
1: The two moments that actually stick out the most for me. The first was about two and a half weeks before the convention, I got a call and I was told that, okay, Ken Burns is doing a film about Ted Kennedy. Davis Guggenheim is doing a film about you know Senator Obama. We were having the the digital team in-house try and put together something for Michelle Obama. We're not really happy with it. Is it something you can take on? And you know, two and a half weeks before the convention. That night. Wrote a script, and I knew because of the time I had, I did not—I just didn't have the time to do anything overly ambitious production-wise. I went and watched a lot of interviews of Barack Obama, um, some interviews of Michelle, and figured out who were some of the potential people that could we could interview for the for the script. But I also wrote most of the script that night, put it into. Michelle's mom's voice, uh, Mrs. Robinson. It's a very simple video, it's a, I wouldn't even call it a film, but it's in her voice telling the story of her daughter and the difference she, she'd been able to make in young people's lives in her work at the university. Uh, in, in law. And, and at the end, it kind of tells a story about the passing of Michelle's father. And, and it was, at a moment, I'm just really proud of it because we were able to make something very, very quickly that was very, very emotional and poignant. And it was, it was special to watch it in the convention hall being played and, and hearing it, the place was just silent uh, for it, which is unusual at a convention. And then about six weeks before the election, I got a call from Jim Margolis. Jim always gets me into crazy situations. I love Jim and feel indebted to him for many things along the way in my career. But he he wanted to know if I wanted to produce a half hour TV special that they were going to run about one week before the election. Of course, how could I say no? And, and meanwhile, this is 2008. I'm, I'm entrenched in Mark Begich's Senate race in Alaska, along with some other really important things we were doing. You know, this is a half hour special on television. Of course, I want to be a part of that. And a whole two weeks went by and we weren't making any progress whatsoever, like nothing was coming together. We weren't having meetings about it. We weren't talking. There was no outline of the script. And then finally, I was able to sit down with Jim and Davis Guggenheim, had some thoughts and a few other folks. And we hired two editors and I just dove in and was. they had the whole library of footage from that campaign at GMB. Just watched every speech I could get my hands on the transcripts of speeches it was, you know, wrote this, this script. We divided it up into sections. It ended up running one week for the election. I wanted the ending to be live. I wanted it to be a, a nod to the nature of the campaign, which was this grassroots force of tens of thousands of people would show up at these stadiums and arenas. And so I wanted to have a live speech ending to the video. So it was about 27 minutes and 10 seconds of pre-edited material. And then we went live to the speech and had him finish the speech and take more time than we have to talk about how complicated that was to to get the timing right. Because everybody in that arena didn't know they were going to be live on TV. And so it had to be a good speech, had to be a good 20 minute long speech, Uh, but then it had to end at precisely the right time. And that ended up running on seven or nine networks all at the same time. And it was the most expensive political ad ever made. I'm proud of that too. Those are probably the two highlights for me. But then also the other highlight was just the team. David Axelrod, David Plouffe put together, they, they would call it like the dream team of consultants. And so it was a lot of the leading names of folks that you've interviewed already on your show. That was just a lot of fun to all of us be rowing in the same direction and all supporting each other. Nothing has come close to that since in terms of just camaraderie and and everybody just all rowing in the same direction.
0: Fast forward to 2020, you were part of Unite the Country, which was one of the big super PACs that supported uh, Joe Biden, a previous guest, Steve Shale, one of the honchos of that effort. Uh, So talk a little bit about how you were viewing that effort in 2020. What was, again, for Unite the Country what was the role that you were foreseeing and how you were thinking about the creative for the presidential?
1: In the early going, in the early states, our goal was to supplement the messaging that we could see the campaign was trying to communicate. It was really additive. Um, we weren't trying to strike off in new directions on our own uh, without being in sync with what the campaign wanted. You obviously can't communicate at all with, with the campaign, but you know we can certainly watch their advertising, see their press conferences, know what their earned media efforts were all about. We tried to line up with that. In South Carolina, we did advertising with Jim Clyburn and made sure that the state knew that he was supporting Joe Biden. That was obviously a a very pivotal state for now President Biden. Some more work on Super Tuesday to help keep the momentum going. Our whole mission was to figure out where can we plug some holes for them? Where can we amplify some messaging that they're already doing? And then in the general election, we knew that there were other talented people doing independent work most of it focused on Donald Trump and what a terrible president he was, especially handling the pandemic. We, I think we did one ad about the pandemic uh, that was negative on Trump. We instead focused our fire on something that we saw in our research that was really important that wasn't at really being done yet. And that was laying the baseline of Joe Biden's story of you know, coming from Scranton and middle-class and fighting for the middle-class and it had an economic plan that built on his success in 2010 with the American Recovery Act when he was vice president. And all these economic pieces that we thought we could help tell that story, we ended up in a lot of the swing states running those, those ads. The campaign itself seemed, I think rightly so, justifi- uh, justifiably so, on trying to build up the base with a lot of ads about the progressive nature of his, of his policies and his, and his platform. We went a little bit more after the blue-collar working class Here's what he's going to do when he's president. Here's how he's going to defeat the virus. Here's his economic plan, eight point economic plan. We did one ad. It was a 60 second ad where I actually went into the home that he grew up in in Scranton with a camera and went up the stairs. He always tells the story about his father climbing the stairs and coming up to tell him that he had to leave and go to Wilmington, Delaware to try and get a new job. And so we actually shot in Joe Biden's childhood home, went into the bedroom that his dad would have gone into, and actually even had one of the beds uh, from the house that, that Joe Biden would have slept in because it was up in the attic. It was still there 50 years later. That ad, is 60 Second Ad, I'm really proud of, is called Deserve. And that ad, started with that story of going up the stairs and it used an old, I think it was a 2012 convention speech of Joe Biden. I I love using the natural voice of the candidate. And so that ad helped tell an economic story in his own voice uh, in a very powerful way with the metaphor of the stairs.
0: We all see ads. We all think that we know what goes into an ad. Is there an undervalued Characteristic and undervalued quality that maybe is not apparent on the screen to to those of us who aren't in the business that you would put some importance on?
1: Yeah, I think more than anything, you have to be persistent. You can't give up on a concept sometimes. I guess I always try to remember that campaigns are spending tens of thousands of dollars on a shoot. So the imperative is to get the shot. Maybe the most extreme example of, of that mentality was a shoot that I did in Elizabeth, New Jersey. The point in the campaign was that a garbage transfer facility had been built in an African-American neighborhood, and they were having literally thousands of garbage trucks coming through that neighborhood every day on the streets, and the kids couldn't play outside anymore. So this was going to be an issue in the campaign, and we were working for a couple of folks running for city council, and there was a mayoral candidate on the slate, too. The idea was, well, let's go to that garbage transfer facility and set up a time-lapse shot showing all these trucks going into the facility. To do a time-lapse shot, you need to lock the camera down. It's stable, and then you just let it run for a long time and maybe get 40 or 50 trucks going in. It couldn't have been more than five minutes after we'd set up our shot when this gold Cadillac comes cruising up the street, parks right in front of the camera, and this guy gets out, and I swear to God, he looked just like Tony Soprano. And he looks at us, glares at us and says, so can I help you guys? And uh, I said, no, no, I don't think so. He goes, yeah, I didn't effing think so. So he walks across the street, across the parking lot, goes into a building. Well, we weren't getting the message. I had the cameraman lift up the camera, move it back about five feet and shoot over the trunk of the car so we could still be centered on that gate. And we started rolling the camera again. And sure enough, just a few minutes later, that guy comes out of the building, across the parking lot, across the street, gets out turns on his car, backs it up five feet, turns it off and walks back into the building. Well, then I said, okay, shoot over his roof of his car. So we lifted up the camera over the roof, and then it starts to rain. And it's pouring buckets of rain. And so I said to the camera operator, why don't we get into our van, go drive a long time around the block, come back, and I'll bet he's gone. So we do that. We go a long drive around the block, we come back, and sure enough, the gold Cadillac is gone. Well, we put the camera in the back of the van. It's a minivan. We slide open the door. We start shooting from, you know, inside the van towards the front gates. And we probably shot for about 15 minutes, got five or six trucks that went in through the gates. And then that time, all of a sudden here comes the gold Cadillac comes screaming up the street, parks right next to the van guy gets out really pissed. And he's like, okay, so who are you? Where are you from? And he's glaring at me. Of course, I I answered the question. I said, well, my name is Mark Putnam, and I'm from Alexandria, Virginia. So he starts screaming at us. phrase I'll never forget was, he goes, so how ugly do I have to get? The cameraman who's in the driver's seat of the van next to me said under his breath, "Uh, I think we should get out of here. And the guy outside outside the window goes, wait, 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 what did he say? What did that little P word say? Well, we're gonna we're gonna leave. And he's yelling at us. So we start driving down the street, and the sound guy is in the back of the minivan with the camera. And he's like, hey guys, you gotta stop. I gotta get the camera off the tripod. You now this is a hundred fifty dollars camera. He didn't want us driving around and have the camera fall over in the back of the van. So we stop and he's trying to pull the camera off the tripod, and the guy comes running up. And he's like threatening to bash our windows in. We eventually take off again. The camp, the sound guy's in the back seat. He's like, guys, come on! I really got to get the camera off the tripod. So we stopped a second time. The guy comes running up. He rips open the back door of the van and rips it off the hinges. It's literally hanging by a bolt in the track. The cameraman slams on the gas. We're driving down the street. We're dragging this door behind us. Sparks are flying. We're pretty scared. And we're racing down the street. And then the sound guy in the back seat is saying, Hey, guys, guys, I got I to gotta put the door back on. So we stopped at the bottom of this little hill. The guy comes screaming up in his gold Cadillac one more time. And he gets out, How ugly! do I have to get? And at this point I lost it. And I said, you ripped our door off. We're clearly trying to leave. Just let us leave. The sound guy grabs the door and he's holding it. And and we go off around the block. What probably bothered me the most in the whole episode was we had gotten five or six trucks going in the front gates. But what I didn't know at the time was from the very moment he walked up to us and started threatening us. The sound guy had turned off the camera. So none of this was on tape. It would have made a hell of an ad <laughs> to have this guy threatening us. And it, it could have been an incredible ad. But so we didn't get that shot, but I did get the shot that I needed to get, which was the trucks going in and out of the gate. So if I can be accused of being pretty persistent, uh, I'll, I'll take that accusation. because I feel like every shot we had planned to get, we got to get
0: how the sausage is made in the polling world is not nearly uh, as colorful. So I appreciate you sharing that with me. You're associated with very high concept spots that we've all seen have gone viral. But, you know, in a, in a given campaign, how do you balance these high concept, uber creative spots with the needs of a campaign, which at any given time, maybe just call for something much more straightforward or more meat and potatoes type spot?
1: When we conceive of what the spots could be for the campaign, the most important point is capture the candidate's personality, do something that's true to who they are. And if we think that they can carry a creative concept uh, that might be humorous or it might be more emotional, it it needs to fit them and it needs to fit the needs of the campaign. If we think Hey, this is a situation where the tenor of the times, for instance, shortly after 9-11, in the midst of the, of the Great Recession, in the middle of 2020, when everything was going to hell. Like, there are times when humor isn't necessarily the right thing. doesn't mean you can't do something that's more creative, that looks visually different. But we try to match the times that we're in with the candidate we have. And we also think about how many ads are we going to run for this candidate. If we're only going to do one or two, and it's a very crowded marketplace with lots of ads, we're more likely to, to pick a concept that is going to be eye-catching. But if we have to run five, six, eight ads in a the campaign, there are a lot of imperatives in every race that you have to make sure are communicated. And so those are the races where you might see us offer up a mix of, of, of approaches, where some are a little bit more traditional, some are a little bit more outside the box. We try to make sure that that in the end, that the, all the ads together communicating all the imperatives of the campaign. We wanna make sure everybody on the team is comfortable with the approaches that we're suggesting. The candidate most importantly has to be comfortable with it. And you know, I think the best ad campaigns are varied in their approaches creatively, but always are consistent on the message and the strategy. The last thing I would say on this is that I certainly had my share of campaigns that are very straightforward because that's, that's what the times called for. And we didn't try to do anything unusual. That's what that campaign needed. So it really depends on each individual situation and what will best serve that candidate's ultimate goal, which is to win. We don't care about winning awards. We want to win elections. And ultimately, that's what has to drive every creative decision.
0: Well, that makes a lot of sense. I appreciate you letting me um, pick at a couple of those strands. I guess just a couple other questions here, Mark, how you think about the political industry. You know, we mentioned that you've been in multiple firms, you've started firms, different partnerships. What do you wish you had known about being in the business, starting a business, running a business? What do you wish you'd known about all that from the start?
1: I feel like I'm one of the luckiest people I know. I was a dorm counselor and got to meet Geraldine Ferraro. I got to go work for Bob Squire, which led to Joe Biden's campaign, which led to Peter Fenn and Tom King, which led to a partnership with Steve Murphy. And all along the way, I mean, I grew within firms. I didn't jump from job to job that much. I mean, I was with Peter Fenn, Tom King and Steve Murphy eventually for almost a decade. And Steve Murphy and I were partners for 14 years after that. And then I've had my own firm since then. And all along the way, I just watched what I thought those firms that I was in did right especially forming the firm with Steve Murphy in 1997, just learning all the things you have to do to put a business together. How you can get your insurance coverage, how you can handle your payroll, how you're going to find an office, Where you know how much space do you need? How low can you keep the rent? All these things that I went through and because I had a partner, we could make the decisions together. I never felt alone on that. You know, we, we really tried to hire the very best people we could. And so I really, honestly, I don't look back and think, boy, I wish I'd done that differently. I just feel very, very grateful. What have you learned about building a team, finding the right people, I think the culture of a firm is really, really important, and I've always tried to create a work environment where we try to do the best job we possibly can on every single ad. It doesn't matter what level of the race, we're putting everything we can into it. We're, we've just come up with some concepts for a county commissioner race uh, in New Jersey where the candidate can't even afford to do a shoot. And uh, so we came up with a way of doing something with iPhones it has yet to be done yet, but um, it's just an example of, it doesn't matter if it's the president of the United States or a county commission race, we want to do the very best job we can. And I've all, I've never forgotten. And I always try to impress this upon people that, that work for us, that we literally sometimes are holding somebody's career in our hands. They're trusting us to do the very best we can and the difference between winning and losing and, and a person having a career that they have dreamed of since they were a kid or not working out. And so We never forget that. And to find people that buy into that perspective is not easy, but I really try to find people that are humble and modest, that don't take themselves too seriously and are willing to listen and to learn, are willing to to come in and spend hundreds of hours sometimes with me in an edit suite to learn how to edit. Because it's, it's not like I have a manual that says, here, here's how you make a great ad. Be willing to watch and learn and know what you don't know. I've gravitated to people like that. Maybe people like that have gravitated to us that just want to do really good work. And I think that culture is how I've been able to find people and then, you know, you hope they stay as long as, as as they want to.
0: Is there a work habit you have, maybe something unconventional or quirky, but something you've picked up just as a habit, as a practice, that's a little different, but, but works for you?
1: I think first off is that I'm very demanding of myself that I don't want to do something I've done before. And so a work habit will be that I, I, I like to sit down when it's quiet and I can write. And I know what the objective is, because it's always driven by research. You know, the work product that you create is so important to what we do in a campaign. And I don't want to be creative for the sake of being creative. So it first starts with digesting the polling and any other qualitative, quantitative research that you've been able to do. It's going through that research book. And then it's sitting down and trying to write. And I'm pretty quick because I've seen so many ads over the years of dismissing concepts out of my head if I think that I've seen it before. I'd really rather come up with something different. So... You know, I have to get away from the conference calls. I have to get away from kids at home that might be noisy. When it was easier when they were younger, and they go to bed at eight o'clock at night, and I could work from nine until two a.m. Sometimes, not as easy now uh, because they're teenagers and they're up all night too. And I think it dates back to that very first job I had with Bob Squire, where I would stay there late at night and watch every ad they ever made. I'd go in on the weekends and spend all the time just trying to learn and watch. And I watch movies but I watch it in a way that's different from a lot of people. I'll turn the volume off uh, and just watch the cinematography and watch the storytelling with no audio to distract me. I used to watch music videos the same way. I, you know, Back when MTV was mostly music videos, I would watch that with the volume off. It's just trying to soak in storytelling techniques, ideas I'll I'd get from other people and then being focused and really being able to like demand of myself something new and different.
0: What is your advice to the next generation of people? People, that kid in college who's deciding you know, what their path is, somebody early in their career or still working on campaigns, what should that person be doing in practical things uh, to be preparing for a career in political media?
1: It's helpful to, or healthy, to always remember that, that there are two imperatives in every campaign, as to get the strategy right and then to get the creative right. And I think they're equally important. And so I think you have to exercise both skills um, coming up uh, through the through the ranks. So on the creative side, study ads, learn what good writing is from bad writing, get a sense of the rhythm, meter, and the rhyme of good writing. Read poetry, read fiction, expand yourself in areas that maybe aren't comfortable to learn language and learn how to become a good writer. And then on the political side, become a student of history and learn what worked and what didn't work in past campaigns. You know, How can you you know, eliminate, it's part of when I tick ideas off in my head and then eliminate them. Sometimes it's because I knew that it didn't work 20 years ago or 30 years ago or before I even got into the industry. I really tried to learn as much as I could about political campaign history. I think that the, the best foundation you can have is a strong sense of language and storytelling and a strong sense of political history and strategy. And a lot of it, you just end up learning on the job. It started with writing scripts and then it came to advancing shoots and then it was directing shoots. And then it was eventually having more of a say in, in how a campaign was run. I kept a journal in college in my senior year and I thought I wanted to get into this. I started thinking, well, I should write down ideas I have for ads? And I go back and I look at some of those ideas for ads and they're terrible. But you know, at least I was trying to think of how I would communicate something. And then I learned over time what would work and what wouldn't work. And I think it's just being open to that that educational process is more important than anything.
0: As we wind down, Mark, this is a question I've borrowed from the economist Tyler Cowan. He might reference the Mark Putnam production function, meaning a lot of smart people that are out there, a lot of people who work hard, a lot of people who are creative. But Mark, what do you think has made you different? What's unique about you? that you've been able to be so successful uh, in, in what you've done in the political industry?
1: Well, I'd like to hope that I don't take myself too seriously, first off. I mean, I still feel like I'm that kid from Alaska who just feels lucky to be doing what I'm doing uh, and to get paid for it. And, and and that might be a cliche, but it's true. I think you will ultimately be successful if you love what you do for the majority of your waking hours. And and for me, that was doing this, this career and, and being fortunate to be able to do it. I think it's to keep trying to do things differently, look at how can I make a point that's been made a thousand, two thousand times in political ads before, but do it in a different way. I bring that sense of challenging myself to every job I work on. But I also if I think I have a concept that, you know, is something that can work and and people don't aren't sure about it, I'll defend it. And I hope I can convince people. But then ultimately, if I can't convince people, it, all, every good campaign is a collaboration. And if I can't convince people on something, then I need to figure out another way to do it. You're humble and, you're, and you have humility, yet you also need to believe in what you're doing and believe in your ideas enough to at least try to convince folks to, to see things your way. But if you can't, then it's a team effort.
0: Well, Mark, let's end on a recommendation, and this can be uh, comfort food. It doesn't have to be brain food, but what's something, a TV show, a book, a movie, a recipe, a new product, something you've gotten into recently that you'd recommend people give a try?
1: I have something really obscure. So I I suppose I would do it more as a recommendation for the process I went through rather than necessarily the thing that I'm doing. I learned that my grandmother and great-grandmother came through Ellis Island. You can learn these sorts of things from Ellis Island Foundation. And I learned that they came on a specific ship. It was called the Philadelphia. And so I just became obsessed with learning the history of this particular steamship. And I learned that it, you know, they came through in 1920, but that it had been built in 1889. And I just learned the whole history of this ship. To me, it's fascinating that millions of people came to this country via steamship, and we don't ever even think about it now. So I started collecting things about this specific ship. So I'm not saying go out and find the steamship in your family's history, I'm just saying, Go, you know, go find that thing in your family's past that is really intriguing to you, and learn as much as you can about it.
0: You mentioned digging into your own family's history. Appreciate you letting me dig into a little bit of your history. I'm always good when we connect. Thanks so much for giving me some of
1: your time today. These are great. Proud to be a part of it.
0: Thanks for listening to the Pro Politics podcast please subscribe so you can access each episode first thing every Tuesday morning. And if you're so inclined, leave a rating and a short review on your podcast app to help more people find this podcast. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook for updates on upcoming guests. Thanks for listening.